Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Today I'm talking to Benison O'Reilly and Shauna Smith about their new book, The Australian Autism Handbook, The Essential Guide to Parenting a Child on the Autism Spectrum. Shauna and Benison, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Benison, your son Sam has been diagnosed with ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, and Sam is now adult. What has the journey been like for you and your family? Our journey has been a bumpy one, I would say, which I think is the case for most parents of a child on the spectrum. Um, Sam is what they call ASD level two, so he's sort of somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. He's uh, not severely disabled, but then he's also not the geeky guy, like the good doctor, um, sort of level one Asperger sort of syndrome as well. So he's in the middle. And he also has an ADHD diagnosis. And so those two conditions sort of work together to make life more challenging for him, I suppose. He started off in a special education, but has now then moved to a mainstream high school where he went through with support, did his HSC, uh, non-academic, but what is HSC now since then has been uh, doing sort of uh, early job training as well. He's learning to drive. He goes to the gym. Um, you know, he he socialises with friends online. So his, his life... If I thought back to when he was diagnosed at age three, I was absolutely terrified that I had this awful future and that certainly hasn't evolved uh, that way as well. So it's, it's actually been like, you know, it's just a part of our lives. It's actually, it makes life a bit harder because you're negotiating with NDIS and schools and that sort of thing as well, but not that much harder than raising a, a typical child. And I have a couple of those as well, so... And Shauna, what about you? You also have a son who's been diagnosed with ASD. That's right. So he is 25 now, so really um, has moved on a lot. And he's pretty independent, not completely independent. He works um, part time. He can drive a car. He does door dashing as well. But he still does require a lot of support. But like Benison, when he was diagnosed age three, Um, with a lot of delays and he has a massive language disorder Um, I was absolutely not sure what the future would hold and back in those days there wasn't a really a great deal of good information around so I can still remember you know just the shock of thinking I don't know anything about autism what am I going to do and I look back and wish that um, I had I wish I hadn't worried so much about him. You know, I wish I'd just taken it one day at a time and because he's living a great life. Um, And like most people with autism, he's got some special interests which give him the most enormous amount of pleasure. So he started uh, playing guitar and listening to music um, when he was quite young. And it is so much part of who he is. I often am envious of how much joy he gets from the things that he knows a lot about. You know, so I have learned a lot, you know, from him. And Benison, how's our understanding of the condition changed? 
it was first written about, identified uh, in the 1940s, not that long ago. That doesn't mean it didn't exist, but someone had to actually identify it and write about it as, as a, you know, a unique condition, of course. So in those days, it was uh, largely thought of as being a very severe condition because obviously the, pe- the parents had presented their child uh, for diagnosis were children had you know, profound difficulties. So over the years, for many, many years, it was thought to be this syndrome, you'd know, the very severely affected, very isolated, may have no speech uh, sort of condition. And then that was continued on until uh, the late 80s when they recognised Asperger's as being a syndrome, which is to say these higher well, I'm using the term higher function, I'm saying that um, I'm not meant to use that as we can discuss later, but these these individuals with uh, no intellectual disability, good language skills, but just these problems with uh, socialisation and obsessions, which sort of, so that was recognised in the late 80s and went into becoming part of the diagnosis in the 1994, in that, that DSM-4. So um, that's when we sort of realised the spectrum as they call it, it's called a spectrum because of the fact it's um, so varied, um, became a much wider diagnosis. So it's um, so now that's 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 the issue now. And of course, since then also we've recognised in those days it was thought to be almost all exclusively in a, a condition that affected boys. But now, of course, we realise it's actually affecting a lot more girls than we used to as well. Um, and that's certainly something that's happened probably really in only in the last five or ten years. And a lot of young women are getting diagnosed as adults who've gone through life not fitting in, having lots of mental health diagnoses, and then now um, now belatedly being diagnosed with autism as well. So we've sort of gone from thinking it was a very severe condition to a much broader condition, affects everyone differently, but also can affect girls, not quite as often as boys, but certainly it's the ratio is much closer than originally thought. I want to talk specifically about diagnosis and how difficult that is. Uh, it's not only difficult, but it's contentious and sometimes quite costly. What advances have been made in diagnosing autism? We do now have uh, Australian guidelines on, on, on diagnosis, which I suppose have framed the way uh, these clinicians can can think about diagnosis and it covers all these different, as we mentioned about the fact that it has different sections for girls, um, older people as well, because some people get diagnosed when they're older as well, so how age might affect the manifestation of autism as well as people mature. I think there's still a big problem, of course, around access. Um, there's not enough clinicians around, so there's always going to be a waiting list, especially for public services. So, of course, you know, if you've got someone there, sitting around waiting for a diagnosis, that's, that is a, a serious issue. Probably less so now with the NDIS because you can actually get access to early intervention before diagnosis, which is a great thing about the NDIS. Sean is probably more qualified to talk about the NDIS, but that is one of the great advances. You can actually get access to NDIS before you have an official diagnosis. But in the past, of course, you know, if you were sitting around waiting for that diagnosis before you could get access to resources and funding and intervention. Obviously, that was a terrible time for parents to have to wait for that as well. As far as diagnosis goes, it's interesting in the new guidelines, they talk about the fact for some cases it's really obvious and a single clinician, uh, it could be a a paediatrician or a well-qualified psychologist who's got expertise in this area, can diagnose someone who's got very obvious uh, autism, a, a young child who presents with very clear um, signs and symptoms. It's when you get onto these more subtle cases we talked about, this broad spectrum, 
where it, it actually becomes harder and, it, and the signs can be su- quite subtle for some children. Children might, might get through up until school or even high school and manage to sort of fit in, as we say. I, I don't know if you mentioned about the girls, how they can mask their symptoms as well. They, they're observing all the time and watching other people and seeing how to fit in. So they can actually get through to quite older ages by sort of trying to adopt their, their you know, their their square peg into a round hole for one of a bit of a term. So those are the more complex cases that may take longer to diagnose and also probably need what they call a multidisciplinary diagnosis where you actually get several clinicians, which might probably get a paediatrician or a psychiatrist, um, a psychologist, uh, a speech therapist, um, sometimes an occupational therapist, all getting together and making a sort of consensus decision. But even then they may hold off on that until a few years later when it becomes more obvious. But as I say, some people can actually get through until their primary school or even high school where the social demands just become too great and that's when the diagnosis becomes clear. Benison, the handbook suggests that autism in girls may be underdiagnosed. What is it about the expression of autism in girls that might be different to boys? Well, it's interesting if you look at the diagnosis in a more severely affected children with the ones with language delays and intellectual disability, where the ratio of girl to boy is closer to two to one. So that made them consider whether there were girls who were missing a diagnosis who were these uh, more uh, able children who could speak and, and attend school, um, that they were as we say, passing through, not being missed in the diagnostic net. And we've discovered this is very much the case and as young women being diagnosed in their adulthood now um, who've just gone through, slipped through a whole life and quite often been diagnosed in the teenage years with mental health disorders, which obviously can be quite distressing. Um, girls, they, they tend to be more verbal. They say closer to a typical boy than to an autistic boy. So uh, not because not to the centre being a, a typical girl, but they're closer to a, a typical boy in their, their verbal skills. They're much better at fitting in at school as well. So they will, um, as they talk about masking or camouflaging where they actually put on a mask and they watch everyone and they say, oh, this is the way I do it. I will, I will follow their lead. And they can do this quite well, usually up to late primary or high school. That's when maybe they just can't keep up because children become much more sophisticated in those later primary years. So that's when things can start falling down and they might start getting mental health disorders. And the other thing that parents report with children like this, uh, with girls like this, that they might do really well at school and conform and not have uh, difficult behaviours. But when they get home, the whole pressure of being at school all day and fitting in, they blow their top at home (laughs) and I think the parents called this and I think it's a great term to think about the coke bottle effect where you're sort of shaking a bottle all day and it's getting bumped during the day and then they get home and you open the lid and everything goes everywhere so uh, the other way sometimes girls might just retreat into themselves as well so they can they're spending all this effort trying to fit in um, and so and it works to a point but then it gets to the point where it becomes too much so that's why a lot of these these girls have been missed with their diagnosis or, or misdiagnosed. So it is now being recognised um, that uh, we have to also look for girls in autism in girls and we have to look in a slightly different way. Now, we've talked about the way our understanding has changed, but along with that is the language we use to describe autism. Shauna, we, we used to use terms like high functioning and low functioning and 
What was your attitude to those terms? Did you use them yourself? How has that changed over the years? I didn't really use them myself um, when my son was young because he could, he was good at doing some things and other things were really difficult for him. So, and I think that's just life, you know, everybody has a range of abilities. And the term high functioning um, was, Asperger's had sort of taken over from that in a way, but I always knew my son didn't have normal, typical IQ or normal range and his language was really delayed. So that was never for us. It was very difficult. I always have liked the term autism spectrum disorder because I think that's just the way it is. And everybody has got some strengths and some areas where they need support. Um, so we're just not using those terms ever at all anymore. And and particularly low functioning, it was like um, chucking somebody in the dustbin. You know, it was really not good. If you're going to talk overall, you talk about high support needs, low support needs. Much better to talk about the individual and say, um, this person needs help here, this person doesn't need help there, and let's try and always get the person to have as much say as possible, which of course you cannot do with very young children um, at all. But people with autism are now really claiming their strengths and sharing information now. The internet has a big part to play in that, They've been able to express their own views and develop their own sense of pride and recognise their strengths, as Shauna alluded to. And so they've actually owned the term autistic now. And generally, uh, adults on the spectrum will refer prefer to call, refer to themselves as autistic. Uh, so that's a big area. Um, and also, of course, these people are now, when they talk about this, they don't like the language around all the language around uh, the diagnosis, uh, which is in the DSM five, is all about deficits, and so we're trying to move away from those terms and talk about behaviours, use non pejorative terms to make it less uh, a, a negative uh, diagnosis. Not talking about someone suffering from autism, some all these sort of terms that which we used we used to bandy them around, and now we're sort of saying, well, actually, they are they're, they're terrible terms, and. And I think about when I was a parent, you know, having all these terms, when I, Sam was first diagnosed, being told to me, it's, it's just so soul-destroying. And, and and we know now that the the future can actually, as we mentioned before, be quite positive. And, uh, you know, and at that time, it's, it can make parents very depressed to be talking about these terms in such a negative way. So the fact that uh, older autistic people have now sort of claimed the narrative, I suppose, and talking about it in a much more positive way, I think will actually help parents as as well. Um, it's not always easy because um, some autistic uh, advocates want to make autism not out to be any sort of disability as well, and it's not quite that simple because some people actually are quite disabled and some of the parents of those children um, can feel a bit disenfranchised, I suppose, by this terminology because they look at their child and say, no, my child actually has a severe disability. So it's trying to find the middle ground there where we celebrate the strengths of autism and use this positive language, but also recognise that some individuals need more support than others. My role in the book was more to interview families and to interview autistic people. And Benison is the writer of the um, evidence-based sort of medical side of things and the pharmaceutical side of things. My job was to interview people and get out of the way, you know, 
So we have a chapter in the book where autistic adults share their advice to the parents of newly diagnosed children. And I think it's one of the most valuable things. So I, I my job is to interview and tape it all up, but their words are in the book and they explain what their parents did that worked really well for them as little kids, what didn't work so well, and and they give warm, caring advice to new parents. And I think that's one of the most useful things in that book. Something that was is central to the upbringing of young children and, and to the lives of the parents that are bringing up those children are three big issues, um, sleeping, toilet training, and eating. Now, these are issues confronting every parent. But what are the additional challenges there for children with ASD in dealing with those big issues? Yeah, these are huge issues and they're issues for any parent, but they can be specifically difficult with children who are on the spectrum, especially sleeping, because young children can often sleep very poorly right from babies. And so parents, and I was one of these parents, can be extremely sleep deprived and, and have children who, and this is my case, who are up at the crack of dawn and don't play with toys and don't sit quietly and need to be run around. So. Um, you know, one of my pearls of wisdom was just make peace with early mornings and get out and exercise yourself and help your kid run off some energy. Um, I think that with all of these things, the sleeping is really impactful in a negative way for families if it's not going well, as is eating, because it's very central to a parent's well-being to see their children eating well. And for some children on the spectrum, eating can be really difficult because of the sensory sensitivities that they have. Um, and parents need advice and they need a lot of compassion and not judgmentalism from other people. Um, and that also requires professional guidance. And the good news is now that, as Benison said, you do not need a diagnosis to go or to phone up the NDIS and say, my child has difficulties in this, this and this, and you should start to get some professional advice on dealing with these really crucial issues. A child who doesn't eat or doesn't eat well absolutely breaks a parent's heart and makes them very anxious, and this is my experience. So that helping to help the child is really crucial to getting going. Um, toileting is also an issue, but my I think this is reflected in what professionals have said in the book is don't worry about it. If your child's still in nappies at four, it doesn't matter. You know, it's our kids. Well, if your child has delayed like minded, it's only a delay. It doesn't mean that they'll never do it. Um, and I was certainly one of those parents that wanted them toilet trained alongside other children, you know, typically developing children. And I had to let go of that and just realise that he would do things it would just take a longer time and I needed to learn patience. The most important thing with all of these crucial developmental steps is to break everything down in tiny increments and just learn a little bit, learn a little bit, learn a little bit, learn a little bit, and you will get there. And I can say that my son at 25 is now doing things that people might have done in their teenage years or having experiences and um, emotions that people might have had a lot earlier. Um, so, but he's delayed, he will get there. I think Shauna alluded to it earlier how she didn't know anything about autism and, and how parents frame a lot of these milestones for their children. They might 
look at them as if their child was typically developing. So in areas, as she mentioned, that toileting, yes, um, Sam was toilet trained later than normal um, and had a very elaborate way of uh, the number two toilet training where he got a reward for a V1. It was very expensive, but it was effective in the world. So, um, But we got there in the end and, you know, he was completely toilet trained by the age of five, but, you know, it was delayed compared to a typical child. Getting hung up on these things that might be very, very important to a parent of a young child, but perhaps maybe aren't that important in the context of that child's life. And I was, which was mentioning about the food as well. And I think in the book we have a, a very interesting man who's a gastroenterologist, a paediatric gastroenterologist, which is actually quite rare, so that it's after the gut, and he has a child with autism as well. So he's, you know, a perfect expert for us to have as well. But he did mention that, I remember once, how he had a child that had, you know, probably only ate three or four foods, but those three or four foods were enough for that child to get decent nutrition. So in many ways, you, you, the parents worrying about the child only eating a few foods. If those foods are giving them good nutrition, that's a battlefield they may not really need to have, especially when they're younger and they can work slowly over that over time. So Sam was the classic, um, only liking sort of white carbohydrate foods and things like that. But over the years, we've got him, you know, slowly introducing more variety. He's still things he doesn't like, and I'm not going to force it, but he now eats you know, a lot of fruit and vegetables, um, salads and things like that and curries. But it was a slow process and we got there in the end. But I think parents need to understand that maybe even having a limited range of foods, if you're not going to have a battle every night over that meal, is actually don't have that battle. Um, just just live in the moment and worry about this at a later time. As Sean said, you can get professional help for this as well. And it is about that slowly introducing a food very slowly and working up towards as well as how they usually do it in a very simple term. Uh, there are experts out there, but yeah, but don't get hung up on things that may be not that important. The sleep is a big, a big thing because of course, when you sleep deprived, your resources are completely shot and your temper is frayed. And so you've got a child that's already challenging and you've got a frayed temper, your resources are just not, not there. So sleep is a big issue and, and doctors, and um, psychologists can help with sort of sleep training and, and a few medications, as we mentioned in the book about melatonin, is one of the ones that's actually got some evidence as well. So, um, yeah, that's probably the one area where I think parents probably more need help. But this, the toileting and the eating, it, it, as Shauna said, you'll probably just be patient with it, I suppose. Shauna, I'm curious to know what kind of reward uh, number twos might attract. When my son was toilet training, um, yes, he he really didn't want to do number twos in the toilet. And that was fine. Like, I, I did actually relax, let him take more time. But when he was um, ready or seemed to be ready, um, it had been his birthday and he had loved opening presents. And it had really been, I mean, he was delayed in loving opening presents as well. And I used to wrap up little presents for him with a little ribbon round the top. And if he sat on the toilet, he was allowed to unwrap. <laughs> and there would be a tiny little toy inside but he didn't know what it was so yeah that it was the unwrapping of the presents that um cracked the number twos in the toilet which was helpful for everybody you know it was great <laughs> i would actually say you're lucky because i was silly enough to actually give my son a thomas tank engine every one and I don't know if you knew how much they were. They cost me thousands of dollars. But um, he was like a lot of boys 
Well, a lot of children on the spectrum, they love Thomas the Tank Engine. Some parents actually joke it should be in the diagnosis, but for some reason, something about Thomas that really appeals to children. I think maybe the, the fact they have these very obvious facial expressions and things like that on the trains, it's sort of quite funny, but it's a real thing on the spectrum that a lot of kids will love Thomas the Tank Engine. My final question to you is about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and your handbook is a very useful guide to working with the NDIS. Shauna, how has the NDIS changed things for children and families? And what are the challenges in working with the NDIS? I think the NDIS has been a big game changer for Australian families because it does provide funding and quick funding, ideally, for um, the therapies that benefit children on the spectrum and therefore benefits their families too. Now, at the same time, it's not perfect. And we are seeing, you know, continual updates and um, changes to it. But it used to be the case that there were many delays in getting any kind of publicly funded um, services and that parents who could afford to pay for things like speech therapy and um, psychological therapy were able to get it. Um, and people who couldn't afford to pay for it did not get it. They had to wait on very long public health waiting lists, which was very bad for children, you know, and bad for families, because um, the quicker you can work out what's going to help the whole family, then the quicker you can get into new habits and new routines, which are more positive for everybody. So I am a big fan of the NDIS, particularly the early childhood approach, which means that you do not have to wait for a diagnosis before you call up and start asking for support for a child's developmental delays. Very important. The NDIS can support a person who needs support for their entire lifetime. But it is a, an insurance scheme, meaning it's there for everybody should they need it. My son is currently not using any NDIS because he has been supported a great deal. The NDIS funded his post-school job training the company that he was with or the non-profit organisation he was with was really good and helped him get paid work. Um, and he just for today is not needing a great deal of support beyond family support. So he is now on an NDIS programme, which means he doesn't get paid anything, although he's still registered with the NDIS. Now, that might change in the future. Who knows what will happen? But I think that is terrific. Not everybody is going to be able to to do that but that is the idea is to with the NDIS is to intervene early and help kids before they get to school support them whilst they're at school if necessary support them whilst they do job training but the idea is for those who are able to become taxpayers that's what they should do like every other person for those who are going to need support ongoing and um, it's there for them so it's a it's a very positive thing altogether not easy to negotiate. So in the chapter which I wrote, we've got a lot of um, examples from families of how they did it and what they did and how it worked. Lots of parents will need help with the NDIS and they deserve help with the NDIS. So there are organisations which can work with you because it is, it's a big bureaucracy and it can be very difficult and off-putting. So I think parents genuinely need support with it. Um, but the support is there. I cannot emphasise enough 
the importance of meeting other families who are dealing with the NDIS and who are working um, with service providers, you know, speech therapists, psychologists, meeting those people and becoming friends with them so that as a family that you have support, you have other people who know what you're dealing with and other people who are aiming to have a positive approach to autism. Benison O'Reilly and Shauna Smith, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I've been talking to Benison O'Reilly and Shauna Smith about the fully revised and updated version of the Australian Autism Handbook, the essential guide to parenting a child on the autism spectrum. It's published by Ventura, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.